Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> We're presently in a series looking at our gospel DNA and culture. And in particular, we're looking at the cultural distinctives of Sovereign Grace Church. <clears throat> so, so far, we've done three of those distinctives. We looked at humility the first week. That premise then of honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and then living in light of what we see. It's the whole premise of what it means to consider others more important than ourselves. That's what humility is. It's one of the markers of Sovereign Grace Churches all the way around the world. Godliness, the process of imitating God as his beloved children, of understanding who we really are in the Lord, namely his sons and daughters, and then doing all we can to put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self so that we become more like Christ. And last week we looked at fellowship, the importance and priority of doing life together within all that we do in sovereign grace. It's simply not possible to do by yourself. None of us can. God didn't design us to be lone rangers for Jesus. He designed us to run in packs and run together for the glory of the Lord. And today then we look at the fourth part of the puzzle, the fourth part of our gospel DNA and culture. And that's the cultural distinctive of generosity. Generosity has been a marker of our church for the last 10 years here in Sydney. It's been a marker of Sovereign Grace Churches globally for the last 39 if Sovereign Grace Churches globally weren't generous, quite frankly, this church would have never existed. We were so funded over those first years by the global denomination, we would have never managed to actually exist here at all. And for the last 10 years, you also have taken up the banner of doing exactly the same thing. You have been generous. And what I mean by generosity is simply this. It's a readiness to give lavishly and bountifully towards God and others. A readiness to give lavishly and bountifully towards God and others. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so wonderfully encouraging and provoking and comforting all at the same time. Lord, as you pull us together with you again this morning, I thank you that these words aren't primarily mine, that they're yours. I'm re-preaching what you have said to us. And so, Lord, in the same way we've sung to you, bringing worship to you, would we realise in this moment that you now are in turn addressing us back? Our worship hasn't stopped. It's just your turn to do the talking to us. And so, Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word? Have your way in our hearts and our minds. Would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in life, awkward moments and conversations are just a part of the course, are they not? Sometimes people mishear things you say and it suddenly becomes awkward and develops into an awkward conversation. For example, a few years ago I was in the Philippines 
And I was sitting and with a group of different people, I was sitting at one end of the table with a lady who helps oversee one of our orphanages there. Makes a huge difference in caring for a group of kids. Has done for about the last 10 years. Wonderful lady. And at one point in the conversation, I'm just trying to get to know her. So I said, listen, what does your average week look like? And she looked at me and said, I've never been asked that before. And I said, really? I'm surprised. I said, no, I've never been asked it. And well, I suppose, you know, if you want to know, she said, and then she goes into this. She says, well, it all depends what I've been eating, really. Whether it's been meat or potatoes or rice, it depends what it is. And instantly I realized, she thinks I've just asked her, what does your average weight look like? I asked her what her average week looked like. Any normal person at this point would stop her and say, oh no, I don't mean weight, I mean week. But I was like a rabbit in the headlights. So I said nothing and just died a bit on the inside. So she's just talking. Yeah, I tend to go from like 55 kilos to 60 kilos. It just depends. She said, I've never been asked that. And I said, no, no. And I just died on the inside. She totally misunderstood what I'd said, misheard what I said. And it was a very awkward conversation that then ensued. I'm sure we've all had those types of moments. I'm sure you would handle it somewhat differently. I would respect that. I just froze in the moment. But moments when you think somebody's pregnant and you go running over to congratulate them and your wife sees that crazy glint in your eye and stops you on the way and you think, thank you, Jesus, for stopping me on the way. That could have been one of the most awkward, embarrassing moments of my life. Moments when you've got some type of embarrassing illness or it's awkward because of where it is or what's going on and people start to come away. You don't seem yourself. Are you sick? And you're like, yes. Do you want to talk about it? No, no, I don't. This is just awkward. Or moments when you're in calls and somebody comes running over to you and says, hello, it's so good to see you. And you stand there going, I've never seen this person before in my life. And they know your name, they know things about you, you're taken away and you're like, I have no idea who this person is, I don't think I've ever met them. It's just awkward. And then they say, oh, we should hang out more. And you're like, yes, if only I knew who you are. It's just an embarrassing conversation. Life, whether we like it or not, contains within it moments and conversations that are awkward. And as a pastor, one such moment and conversation is this moment, when the topic of money comes up within the context of the local church and you are the one, rather than assigning it to some other pastors, you are the one that ends up preaching it. See, it can be awkward because I think by very nature, as people, we can so often think of money as totally private, can't we? I'm fine to talk about my quiet times, I'm fine to talk about how I feel about things, but don't ask me about what I do with my money. That's just embarrassing. And as a British guy, it's really embarrassing. You don't talk about money at all in Britain. You would never, ever, ever ask somebody what they earn or tell them what you earn. It's just totally like, this is totally not what we do. Money, depending on what culture you're from, is a very private thing. Likewise, on the whole, when people bring up money, it sort of tends to fan into flame suspicions in our life. Suspicions. What's their motive in bringing this up? Why are they asking? What do they want? And you feel that as a pastor. You feel that privacy, you feel that suspicion, and so it can be sometimes an awkward thing to bring up and talk about, let alone be a gospel community leader that's then pressing it home in the week. And yet I thank God that in his grace and in his mercy, and for his glory and our good, he's not embarrassed nor awkward to talk to us about money at all. Because in the Bible, he actually talks to us about it quite a bit. 
Over 15% of all the recorded words of Jesus in the Bible, he talks to us about money. Out of 39 parables, 11 of them relate to money and giving and generosity. If you take all the words that Jesus talks about money and generosity and giving and put them together, he talks more about that than he does heaven and hell combined. To Jesus, money and generosity and giving is a huge deal because he understands this is all important and a part of life, both for the glory of the Lord and, more importantly, for our good. And so standing on his shoulders today and not wanting to succumb to awkwardness, which draws you back from preaching faithfully as would, I want to simply seek to answer this question this morning. Why is generosity just so important as biblically defined. Why is generosity, this readiness to give lavishly and bountifully towards God and others, why is this just so important as biblically defined? Why is it so important to the Lord, which is why he talks about it so much? And why is it so important for him to talk about it, knowing that this is for our good? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. And today I want to cover four of them. And as I cover them, I want to encourage you, if you're already giving generously to the Lord and to others, then be encouraged. I trust this washes you over with the word today. I trust this blesses you and envisions you and equips you to go again in the coming year. And if you're not already giving generously to the Lord and to others, I pray that you would be encountering Jesus this morning in his word. It ain't about what I think. It's definitely not about what sovereign grace thinks. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who we've just sang to addressing us here. So we always want to sit under his word. So why is generosity just so important as biblically defined? Well, four reasons, and here's the first. Number one, generosity gives us an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven and point our hearts to things above Generosity, your generosity, my generosity gives us an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven and point our hearts to things above. They're not my words, they're Jesus'. Look again, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love that. In verses 19 and 20, he gives us then this divine invitation. The Lord Jesus looks you in the eye and says, listen, here's what I want you to do with your resources. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on this earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see, I think sometimes as Christians, we can think when we get to heaven, everybody gets like a welcome pack, a party pack, and everybody gets the identical one. Well, all the way through the Bible, you realise you don't all get the same thing. It depends. It depends what we've done. It talks about different crowns. It talks about different responsibilities. It talks about different gifts. It depends what we've done with our resources that God has entrusted to us here on this earth, depending on what happens then on that last day in terms of what we receive. And what Jesus is trying to help us see here then is, listen, you can't take it with you. Your stuff that you're accumulating, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jim Elliot says it this way, the wonderful missionary He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. I love that. You know, that's been one of those lines that I learned many years ago, and you're just like, yes, he is no fool. The world might look on it as stupid, but he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Understanding heaven is my home, not here. To gain what he cannot lose. I.e. the treasures in heaven. So Jesus says, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Well, because there's going to be moth and rust and thieves. It's all going to go. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Give generously to the Lord and others and it will be accredited to your account, Paul tells us in Philippians. And then in verse 21, he gives us this incredible divine reality that when we understand it, I think can be totally and utterly life-changing. Life-changing to us all, life-changing to our generosity. This is what he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, if we can understand that, it completely revolutionizes the way we give. Jesus himself, your creator and maker, says here's the way it is. Your treasure and your heart, they are always completely intrinsically linked. You want to know what somebody believes and what they're passionate about? Look at what they do with their treasure. They're just linked. They're one and the same. They go hand in hand all the time. What does he mean then when he says heart? Well, Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts, the inner and the outer being. The outer person is the physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. The synonym the Bible most often uses for the inner being is the heart. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person, spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will, and so forth. These other terms do not describe something different from the heart. Rather, they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. The heart, then, listen, is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Though we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the outer person, we must always remember that the true person is the person within. And that's brilliant. The heart is the real you. You know when you say to people sometimes, you know, I've just really enjoyed getting to know them. We instinctively understand we're not talking about their ear or their neck or their nose. We instantly understand what they're talking about is their heart, the real person, who they really are. And what Jesus is helping us see here then is a person's treasures... And a person's heart are always and inevitably intrinsically linked. Where one goes, the other will go with it. We see that all the way through scripture and we see it all the way through culture. So Achan, for example, in Joshua chapter 7. Achan is a soldier from the tribe of Judah. And he single-handedly caused the defeat of the Israelite army at Ai and suffered death himself and his family. Why? Well, because God told them that when you go in to defeat those enemies, don't take anything. Just come away. Don't be corrupted by what they have. Well, Achan had a bit of a look and he quite liked some of it. He coveted a beautiful Babylonian garment. He coveted 200 pieces of silver and he coveted an ingot of gold. And even though God had said no, he decided, yes, I won. 
And as he came away, the actual opposition army then overthrew them. He lost his life. The family lost their life. The Israelite army lost the whole thing. And God said that was because he loved money more than me. Or there's the story of Solomon. We know Solomon as a wise man. We know him as a great king. He is King David's son. But his life later on in years was completely shipwrecked. His faith was shipwrecked. Why? Well, because he allowed his love of women and money to ruin his spiritual life and love for the Lord. And so his latter years, he got completely derailed because he started to go after money. Jesus himself says, you can't serve two masters. King Solomon decided, I think I can. So he went after money and completely shipwrecked his life. That's where his heart really was. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. One of the most bizarre stories, I think, in the Bible. They so loved money that they lied about a piece of land they had sold, claiming that they had given all the money to the church, when in fact they had kept part of it themselves. I don't know why they just didn't say, hey, listen, it's a good go-forward fund. I'm going to sell my house, and why don't I give you 50%, and the other 50% we're going to use somewhere else. Why not just do that? No, no. They decided before the Lord, we want to sell our house, and we want to give it all to the Lord. And then when it came round to it, they're like, yeah, this is quite a bit of money. We could do with some of this ourselves. And so they took some of it. And then when the Lord called them out on it in terms of, hey, I thought you had committed it all to me. They said, oh, we did, and it is all yours. We've given you everything. They completely lied. Why? Because they wanted the money themselves. That was more attractive than honouring and worshipping the Lord in this moment. Our hearts, for good and bad, are totally linked to our treasures. Where our treasure is, there our heart will go also. And what Jesus then is helping us see here, as he pulls a chair alongside us on this beautiful Galilean mountainside here in Matthew chapter 6, is that for you and for me, we're exactly the same. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to find out what any of you in the room, including me, actually really believes? Let's just look at what you do with your money. Because where your treasure is, there your heart, the real you, will be also. And it's then as you look at the invitation from Jesus that it becomes even more profound. But do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, you can't have it here. Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth. There's no point. It ain't coming with you. But use these gifts to treasure stuff in heaven. Why? Well, because it will enable you to, get, to have a hundredfold on that day for millennia rather than what you're going to have in minor's form in like the next 20, 30 years. But secondarily, do it because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want your treasure to be here in the world, you want your heart to be here in the world, then give your whole life to the world. Spend everything you can right here and your heart will be right there. Or give your treasure to the Lord and to being generous and what you'll find is your heart will be there living for that day. It is a profound divine opportunity that he's giving us right here. My friends, I submit to you, this is a divine opportunity that we so readily need, do we not? My friends, we are... Constantly tempted, as I said last week, constantly tempted to take this world as home. Constantly, daily temptation. It is the air that we breathe. 
Live your best life right now. Get everything you can right now, because this is it. We are constantly tempted to do that. As I've said before, our greatest challenge as Christians in Sydney is not primarily persecution from the world, it is seduction by the world. And so we see the Australian dream and we totally give ourselves to that as Christians and then we put, I am a Christian bumper sticker on our car and we think that's Christianity. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid doing that? How do we actually take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus? How do we ensure that materialism doesn't become our God? Well, here's what we do. He tells us, don't store it for yourselves treasures here. Store it for yourselves treasures here, there, because where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see? It's profound. You want your heart to be in heaven? Give for that. And your heart will follow. Randy Alcorn says it this way in the book, The Treasure Principle. He says, giving is God's great antidote to materialism. I love that. Best thing you can do if you find materialism in your heart, start giving stuff away. It is God's gift because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? Where is the real you? Well, let me ask you, what do you spend your money on? Because that's the real you. That's your real values. Generosity, then number one, it gives us an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven, and also point our hearts to things above. Then number two, generosity gives us an opportunity to make a difference in gospel mission. They make a very real difference. You know, one of the foundational truths of the Bible is simply this. It's profound. It's the reality that God as creator of all things is actually the owner of all things. And honestly, just think in your mind for a moment about your clothes, your car, your house, your stuff, your bank account, all the things that we have hours attached to. What the Bible tells us again and again and again is they're not actually yours. They're the Lord's. He's entrusted them to you, but ultimately they are all the Lord's. So in Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, we read, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Isn't that amazing? Somewhere else in the Bible it says, all the gold and all the silver is mine, says the Lord. We think of it as mine, it's mine. And he says, no, it is not. It is mine. Everything in the world, everything that you have that you think is yours is actually the Lord's. But what he has done in his kindness and his splendor is he's entrusted some of what ultimately he owns to you and to me. Why? Well, he's blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. So that we can be his stewards of what he's entrusted to us, to use it for his glory. And so throughout salvation history, God has then called his people to support his great and ongoing work through generous giving. Something people have been doing for hundreds of years. And so in Old Testament times, 
God's people understood that everything is the Lord's. He's entrusted it to me. And so what they would do then is they would give a tithe, the first 10% of all that the Lord had put in their care, plus offerings, and they gave it to the temple. And that's what everybody did as a follower of the Lord. So they gave their offerings and their tithes to the temple. That would then be used for the building and maintenance of the temple, the support of temple servants, of the priests and the Levites, as well as the ongoing work of the temple, all that the temple was called to do before the Lord. And so they came and they gave their tithes and offerings so that the temple could be built before the Lord. Well, in the New Testament, the temple changed, didn't it? The temple became the church. It was less about the building. It was now about the people. People from different tribes and languages and nations that God was building together as what? A holy temple, a dwelling place for God. And so Christians realised pretty quick, I no longer need to give to the temple, I need to give to the new temple, the church. And so they started to give their tithes and their offerings to the church. They came and they just laid it at the apostles' feet, the pastors at the time, and said, here, you use it. And that's what they did. So this money was used to support the ongoing work and building of the church, the new temple. The money was used to support the poor and needy, both in the church and in the community. And the money was used to support the ongoing gospel mission of the church, both locally and extra-locally, as people sought to make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. For hundreds and hundreds of years, that's what the people of God have done. Well, my friends, the great cloud of witnesses have had their time. And in God's sovereignty, it is you and it is me that is now on this cosmic stage delivering our lives. Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Noah, Peter and James and John, they've all gone. They've all delivered their lines. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to understand that he has entrusted so much to me that I am now called to use to bless others for his glory. My friends, I thank God for you as a local church that you over the last 10 years have done this. The vast majority of you have been wonderfully generous and I thank God for that. We as your pastors are overjoyed with the way you continue to give. As I think about what the Lord has done in our church over the last 10 years. We were able to plant another church. We are able to take on different pastors at different times. We've been able to keep pressing on with the gospel locally. Of 8,000 people in the Philippines through ICM have been not only fed, but they've heard the gospel because of the way you gave to these projects. Churches have been planted in over 39 different countries of the world because of the way you give to the different things that we're doing and we're able to just send it on. Send it on, keep going. One of the plants that's happening in Liberia next month, some of that money has come from us. Praise God. Go get them. This is wonderful. We want to be a part of what you're doing. You know, you are making a very real difference as you deliver your lines through generous giving here at Sovereign Grace Church. And we thank God for the way you have done that historically. And friends, I want to encourage you. Let's go again. Let's deliver our lines again. You know, here's the reality, and I always feel this, I think, divine responsibility when I address us here in Sydney. We are not only some of the richest people in the world, we are some of the richest people in all of history. 
In all of history, people have never had as much wealth as they have now, and we just happen to be living in one of the richest suburbs of the richest cities of the richest countries in the world. (laughs) It's all really easy to point at our neighbour and go, man, they've got so much, I'm struggling a bit. None of us are struggling. If you live in Sydney, none of us are struggling. We are stinking rich as biblically defined. He has blessed us to steward his money, to be a blessing to people locally and extra locally. Let's deliver our lives. Let's not waste this opportunity. Generous giving gives us the opportunity not only to store up treasures in heaven and point our hearts to things above, it also gives us the opportunity to make a difference in gospel mission. But even that isn't all. Number three, generosity gives us an opportunity to trust the Lord, to trust him. And true sacrificial giving, I think, inevitably ends up with us having to trust the Lord. And here we see in Mark chapter 12, the story of a poor widow. On this given day here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is sitting outside of the temple courts. On this given day, he pulls up a seat near the treasury. The treasury would be a place where there are 13 brass chests, like horns or trumpets that would be inverted with the big end this way and the small end this way, and they'd be welded to the top, of the, t- the top of the temple wall. And people would just come and give different offerings into them. Well, Jesus and his disciples have parked themselves rather near, and they're watching. And then Jesus draws their attention. Watch this. Read these words, Mark 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's such a moving scene. See, there's lots of rich people putting in their money and it actually grieves the Lord. And you think, why does it grieve him? I mean, they they seem to be giving. Here's the reality. As you read the commentaries and try and understand what was going on, it would appear that at that time, the rich people were doing their giving with a bit of a song and dance. They actually hired, like Dave Sismis, they hired trumpet players and they hired town criers. And so the way it worked was this. Dave would go in front, the town crier would go, behold, David Taylor and his family, and then I would have all my money behind them. Here we go, yes. And then I would go ahead and pour in my wealthy money, which would be plenty, all in copper coins, so that it makes a nice sound. Ching, 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 ching. And you're just there. High five, thank you, everybody. The priest would come out. Thank you so much. And Jesus says, I hate that. That's not what this is about. But then somebody else captures his attention. He says, I love that. And it is the act of this one poor widow. See, what he loves about this woman is not how much she gives. It's her example, first and foremost, of sacrifice. She didn't just give away some of what she had. She gave away everything. All she has is two small copper coins, mites or leptas. To us, that is one-thirtieth of a cent. But to her, it's everything she has. And Jesus loves that. 
And what he loves about it more than anything is not just the sacrifice, but it is the reality that she is an example of faith. She's a widow. Would have been obvious by her tatty clothes. All widows at this time were obvious because they were dressed in a way that was obvious. You've got nothing. But this lady goes up and she gives away all she has, which would have left her in an incredibly vulnerable position. No welfare state, no family around to move her in. But Lord, I trust you. That's all I got. But I trust you. I believe the one who clothes the lilies of the field will care for me. So I trust you. And Jesus looks on and says, I love that. Boys, pay attention. See, the point of this story then isn't to teach us to go and do likewise. That would be poor pastoring to say, see, sell everything you've got and give it all away. Negative. That is not the punchline of this story. He doesn't say go and do likewise. But what he is clearly doing is helping us see that is the, is the, the reality that giving gives us the opportunity to sacrifice to the Lord and indeed to trust him. To put ourselves in a situation where we have to say, Lord, if you don't help me, it's going to be hard. I don't know what we're going to do, both now and maybe in the future as well. I faced this, as I've said to you before, when I was 20 years old. When I was 20 years old, I've told you the story before, due to get married to a girl, I thought I was, had it all going on. I was Dave Taylor, the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom. I need no counsel any time ever. I've got this. Well, it would appear I didn't have this because six weeks before we were due to get married, she called a whole thing off. She left me. She wasn't interested at all. By then, we'd bought a car. Couldn't afford it. Bought a house. Couldn't afford it. I was on £7,500 a year, about $13,000 a year. I'm skinned. No money. House debt. Car debt. She's left me. Oh, no. I call my dad and I'm like, hey, Dad, there's been a bit of a problem. Um, I got no money. Like Zippu. Uh, I don't know quite what I'm going to do. Now, what I'm hoping my dad's going to say in this moment is, there's no worries, son. How much do you need? We'll help you. Negative. What he actually said was this. Son, I hear you. How's your giving? Sorry, dad. There appears to be a line problem here. It sounded like you mentioned giving. You want to give me something? (laughs) And he didn't want to give me anything. He challenged me in my giving. And I'm like, well, Dad, um, <laughs> i got nothing. And he's like, Abby, you have. The Lord has entrusted things to your care. So I want to encourage you to trust God and give to him. And at 20 years old, that's what I did. I started giving out of the little I had. And what that started in my life was a true adventure of giving that I've been walking in for the last 25 years. Here's what I discovered in that time. What I discovered in that time, there are some things that parents and pastors and teachers cannot teach you. They can teach you the facts. But it's only when you're willing to step off the ledge that you find he's faithful. I can't do that bit. But what I can tell you is when you give faithfully to the Lord, even when you wonder, how are we going to manage if we do this? What you'll find is he will be faithful again and again and again and again, and you will taste and see that the Lord is good. But you're going to have to take this step. I can't do that bit for you. But giving gives us that opportunity. It gives us that opportunity to be dangerous with the Lord. There's only one thing in the Bible that God says, test me in this. It's to do with money and his care towards you. The only time. 
Trust him. Giving gives us the opportunity to trust the Lord. And here's what you will find. He is faithful again and again and again. You will be in adventure land as you realize the kindness and provision of the Lord. And then number four, generosity finally gives us an opportunity to do something that God loves. And I love this. This is, I think, one of the sweetest discoveries anywhere in the Bible. See, prior to writing the letter to 2 Corinthians, one year before that, the Apostle Paul, he has already talked to the Corinthian church in Corinthians letter 1 that we have. And the Corinthian church have committed to taking up an offering for their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. If you were a Christian in Jerusalem in the early part of the century, you were in trouble. You were being massively persecuted for your faith. That's why the dispersion happened and so many people fled. And as part of that persecution, you're, you're going to be undergoing starvation because no one will sell you any food. No one wants to give you any jobs. So Paul designed it that what I will do is I will travel to the other churches outside of Jerusalem. We will take up offerings and collections and I will come back to you and I will give you it because we want to care for you because you are our brothers and sisters. Well, the Corinthian church committed to that a year ago. And so Paul's writing to them in 2 Corinthians to say, hey, listen, I'm coming. I'm coming for that offering that you've agreed. He wants to remind them of what they've agreed. He wants to inform them that he's coming. He wants to encourage them and exhort them. Listen, don't do this under compulsion. Don't do this reluctantly. I want to remind you why this is so good. And so he tells them in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, he encourages them with the example of the Macedonians. The Macedonians are like incredibly poor. But he's saying, listen, it's unbelievable The Macedonians have given according to their means and beyond their means. It would be like me saying to you, here's what we're going to do. Sovereign Grace Church Sydney and Sovereign Grace Church Bahal in the Philippines, who are very poor, we're both going to take up collections for Sovereign Grace Church of Texas. And I come to you and say, the Bahal Church, I had to restrain them in their giving. All right, They've got no money. They're actually going without meals to actually help, help the brothers and sisters in Texas. This is what they've done. That's what he's doing. He's encouraging them the way the other churches have responded to what's going on here. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, he then encourages them and simply reminds them of just why giving is so beautiful before the Lord. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7. He says, the point is this. You always want to pay attention when a biblical author says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love that. This is one of those moments in the Bible when you get to see what is it that God loves? What can I do to worship and give thanks to him? And we learn God loves a cheerful giver and what a happy discovery that is. My friends, all of us in the room were at one time an object of God's wrath. Once upon a time, all of us in the room were running away from the Lord. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Once upon a time, We were an object of the wrath of God. We were unforgiven. We were living in hostility to him, at enmity with him. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And in doing so, he performed the greatest act of generosity ever seen before or since. Jesus Christ, in profound generosity, gave his life away as a ransom for many. You and I are here today, forgiven of our sin, adopted into the family of God, assured that heaven is our home, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, because in profound generosity, Jesus Christ gave his life away as a ransom for many. He who is rich became poor, so that in him we may be rich in our lives. You and I, as Christians have been objects and recipients of profound generosity. And what we learn then in the Bible is you and I have the opportunity through our generosity to do something that he says, I love that. Thank you. I love that. That's worship to me. Well done. My friends as Christians, oh my, why would we not want to take him up on that? How dare we be a people that are singing, yes. Receiving, yes. Giving, no. That's mine. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. In light of all that he's done for us. Brothers and sisters, as another year of giving then stretches out in front of us, more opportunities that come our way, both in our normal offerings and the Go Forward Fund, as well as other things that will undoubtedly happen over the year, where you'll be put in situations where you can be a blessing to others. I want to encourage you, would we do all we can then to be a generous people again this year? Generosity gives us an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven. That's cool. And point our hearts to things above. Generosity gives us an opportunity to make a difference in gospel mission. Gives us an opportunity to trust the Lord, to truly trust him and find that he's faithful again and again and again. And it gives us an opportunity to do something that the saviour of the world says, I love that. So may this be our story. May we once again be a generous people. And may our lives then, Truly be worshipped to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as I consider this act of giving, as I consider generosity, Lord, what I've just said is true. It is, it's worship to you. Lord, thank you for letting us worship you. Thank you for designing it in such a way for your glory and our good that we can worship you in such a way that points our hearts to you, that helps the eyes of our heart be focused on you, that helps us play a part in your mission that is going all the way around the world, that helps point our hearts to the reality of how much we can trust you, and that helps point our hearts to you as an expression of us, not just singing, but through our gift of giving, saying, Lord, I love you. This is for you. Lord, thank you for your merciful grace in your word. Would we take these truths to heart and would we apply them? And may it all be sweet smelling incense of worship to you because you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name.